Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Acts, the 15th chapter. And I'll invite you to be finding Acts chapter 15 as well. We're going to read a few verses there at the top of the chapter that will get us underway and will set the stage for all the things that we want to talk about for these next few minutes. You'd be following along in the Bible. That would be most helpful for yourself. It would be helpful for me to know that other folks are searching the Scriptures and making sure the things that I have to say are true and correct and in line with what the Word of God is actually saying. As you're turning to Acts 15, I'll join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning, and we do have lots of folks that are absent from us that are uh, in other places, and this is usually my least favorite week of the year because I know that so many people are gone for fall break and so forth, but maybe the good news in all of that is that much of our salt is going and salting other places of the earth uh, this week, and uh, I'm glad that you chose to remain around and stick around here and that you're here today as we worship God uh, and study from His Word for these next few minutes. As many of you know, uh, last Thursday I had the opportunity to, for the very first time, participate and actually attend a good old-fashioned tent meeting. And it was uh, just a very encouraging week. I got to go Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday, and Thursday night was the night that I was asked to speak. And I was asked to speak, along with the other four gentlemen, on the subject of unity, what it is to have unity in Christ. And on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the brothers that preached preached about what unity is and what unity is not. They preached about the basis and the platform for unity. Talked about some things that are necessary in order for us to have unity. Lots of foundational things that needed to be said so that by the time I got up on Thursday night, well, I could be very, very practical. I was tasked with probably the most challenging lesson of the week. Challenging in the sense of how direct it was and how much it stepped on, well, it stepped on folks' toes, not the least of which was my own. And so I now present that lesson for your hearing this morning. And that all is going to begin for us in Acts the 15th chapter. Read with me beginning in verse 1. The text tells us that there were some men who came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, let's just stop right there. And so begins what is commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Conference. We are roughly 15 years or so into the history of the Lord's church. And while this is certainly not the first problem that threatened to disrupt the unity of those early Christians, it was definitely a problem that had the potential to create a huge divide and to severely damage the cause of Christ. On one side stood men like Paul, and Barnabas, and Peter, who taught that salvation was for Jews and Gentiles alike by the grace of God through faith and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the other side stood Judaizing teachers, some of whom, verse 5, were apparently Pharisee Christians, 
who taught that yes, salvation is all of those things, but it's also, well, it's also necessary to circumcise in order to be saved. It's necessary to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. To say that tensions between Jews and Gentiles were already strained, well, that would be a bit of an understatement. But this, what was going around and what was being taught here, this was a powder keg ready to explode and blow up everything. The question is, what was the early church to do? What were those people to do in the face of an issue that brethren were differing so widely on? Would the church say, well, you know, that's what you believe and this is what we believe and so let's just agree to disagree on this. Would they segregate and splinter and fracture and fragment off into competing groups where you essentially end up creating the first denomination within the Christian religion? Would they continue to fuss and to argue and to bicker with one another throughout the years, throughout the remainder of the first century doing untold damage to the cause of Christ? The answer to all of those questions is no, no, and no. What Acts 15 shows us is that those brethren came together in Jerusalem to deal with their differences. Paul, Barnabas, the apostles, the Jerusalem elders, the Judaizing teachers, these Pharisees and unnamed others, they all converged in this one place and said, we need to figure this out. we got to somehow resolve this issue. We need to sit down and work through this thing because we need to be united. Fast forward now nearly 2,000 years and things really haven't changed all that much, have they? The Lord's people today, we may not be having disputes over the matter of circumcision, but we certainly have found plenty of other things to differ on and to divide over. Whether it's differing positions on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or social drinking, or whether a Christian can serve in the military, or the woman's head covering, or Sunday evening communion, or how many cups are on the communion, or the support of human institutions, or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or the date and the age of the earth, or what translation of the Bible to read from, or what color of the carpet we're going to have in the church building. God's people today continue to bicker and to fight over every cotton-picking thing you can imagine. And of course, if we're not dividing over things that we would consider kind of spiritual matters, what are we doing? We're fussing and fighting and dividing over petty matters like personality clashes and hard-heartedness and holding grudges and failing to forgive. That spirit of the Corinthian church that was so beset by division that spirit of individual people like Euodia and Syntyche in the Philippian church, those spirits continue to wreak havoc on the people of God even today. The question is, what do we do about that? You know, if there's one thing that we can be absolutely certain of is that we are going to have differences. You take a group like this, and again, a big chunk of our number is not even here today. But you take all of the folks who make up this congregation. We all have so many different backgrounds and upbringings. People of different ages, people of different cultures, people of different maturity levels. People who are rich, people who are poor. People who are white collar, people who are blue collar. Male, female. We are diverse in so many different ways. You plunk all these people together into the body of Christ. i got to tell you, despite our very best efforts... Beside our very best efforts, we are bound to have some differences and some conflicts at some point along the way. And so what do we do in the face of those difficulties? 
Well, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that instead of cowering and hiding and running away from that and acting as if there's no problems whatsoever, I'm going to suggest that we follow the example of those Christians in Acts 15. And that is that we meet those challenges head on and deal with our differences. And I realize that that is a whole lot easier said than done. Some of us would probably rather go to work on the Middle East peace crisis than have to go to work on that long festering issue between my brother or my sister that's been going on for the past six months. But I'm going to say to you today that sweeping our problems under the rug and then maybe putting on a fake artificial smile and trying to putty over all of that as if there's nothing there, that is not the pattern of Scripture and more importantly, that is not unity. Which is why this morning I want to talk about how to deal with our differences. And in doing that, I do want to be extremely practical and I want to be extremely pointed, maybe even uncomfortably so, as we talk about how to do that in order to preserve unity. In the next few minutes, I'm going to rip off probably about ten different ideas that I think you and I think I can start putting into our hearts and putting into practice today. Things that I can go to work on immediately as I think about how to deal with differences with my brethren. We want to do that in such a way that number one, honors God. We're going to glorify God in what we're doing. And then secondly, we're going to do that in a way that continues to promote the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that all has to begin with this first thing. It has to begin with the core conviction and belief that we can work through our differences. We absolutely have to believe that. And it does not matter what the issue may be. It does not matter who the issue may be with. It does not matter how long that issue has been brewing. You and I must believe that what Jesus prayed so earnestly for in John the 17th 17th chapter, that His followers would be one, just as the Son and the Father are one, and that we can be one in them. We have to believe that that is attainable. Here in Acts chapter 15, just think about it. Why did Paul and Barnabas travel all the way down from Antioch of Syria down to Jerusalem? You look at a map, that's about 300 miles. Why did they go to all that trouble to travel that far? It's because they believed that this dispute over circumcision, that it could be resolved. When Paul sent that lengthy letter to the Corinthian church, we've been studying that on Wednesday nights, 16 chapters full of admonitions and rebukes. Paul pours so much of his heart and his passion and his energy into that letter to tell those brethren, straighten up, stop acting so carnal. Why does Paul do all of that? It's because he believed. He believed he had faith in the power of God's Word that it can work in the hearts of his children to cause people to change. And yet all too often, whenever we have conflict with our brethren, what do we say? We say things like, oh, he's never going to change. He's just always been that way and he's always going to stay that way. Or, you know, I just can't talk to her. I I just cannot have a civil conversation with her. Or, you know what, there's just no way that we're ever going to see eye to eye and be on the same page about that. We throw up our hands and we act as if the commands of Ephesians 4 verses 1, 2, and 3 about maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we act like that's just an impossibility. I want to say to you this morning that when we act as if unity is not achievable with our brethren, at least a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, we're going to deny the power of God. 
God's power to work through His Word, to work in His providence, to work through our circumstances, to work through His people, to bring about healing and restoration and oneness. And then secondly, not only do we deny God's power, but we also end up, maybe inadvertently, cooperating with the devil. That's what we're doing. When we allow him to successfully sow discord among the brethren, when we throw up our hands and say, well, I just can't do anything about that. That cannot happen. There must not ever be this pessimistic attitude that concedes defeat. Instead, God calls for his people to believe, to be hopeful, to be optimistic, to say, you know what, this problem that exists between me and my brother or my sister... This can be fixed. I believe that with God, all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. And that includes, that includes being at peace with the family of God. But I must tell you that as important and as good as it is to have a robust faith in God's plan for unity, that's a start, but that's all that that is, is a start. That faith, that trust, that confidence, it must then move us to action. Namely, and secondly, we got to be willing to communicate. When there are differences in the body of Christ, we're going to have to talk. If there is conflict, if there's animosity, if there is unrest of any kind between Christians, we got to address that. We gotta be willing to sit down and to talk about that, no matter how unpleasant or how, how, how uncomfortable that may be. Are you still there in Acts chapter 15? Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, after there had been much debate. I like how one translation renders that. After they had talked it over for a long time. Let me ask you, do you think that the folks there in Acts 15 enjoyed having to have that particular discussion? Do you think anybody there in Acts chapter 15 that they just kind of delighted and were overjoyed at the thought of having to go to the brethren in verse 5 and saying, now brothers, listen, you're wrong. You're wrong about that and I want to explain to you why you're wrong. No. Nobody wanted to have that awkward conversation where you go and correct someone or you call someone's conduct into account. But they did it anyway. In Galatians, the second chapter... In Galatians chapter 2, whenever Paul learned of Peter's hypocrisy and how Peter's hypocrisy was causing even greater division between the Jews and the Gentiles' relations, do you think that Paul relished in Galatians 2 verse 11 having to go and confront Peter about that? Absolutely not. But he did it anyway. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that when brethren had issues with one another, they came together... And they talked about it. But far too often, that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is we want to stub up. We want to cross our arms. And we want to give the silent treatment. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just not shake that brother's hand for the foreseeable future. Or you know what, I'll just try to avoid that sister from now until eternity. Yeah, yeah, that'll show them. Sometimes even worse, not only do we not want to talk about these things, sometimes particularly in an area like this in Lake Cumberland, where there's lots of faithful congregations within a short driving distance. Sometimes even worse what happens is, is instead of sitting down and discussing and working through our issues, what happens is, is I'll just run away. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll just pack me and my family up and we'll go down the road to another congregation. We'll put our membership in there. That way we don't have to think about that brother. We don't have to uh, see that sister. And we sure don't have to sit down and talk with them about it. 
Do you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like my five-year-old child. This past week, Hattie and I were sitting in the living room. And it was early in the morning, and she still had her pajamas on, and I told her, hey, you need to get up and get your, you know, start getting your clothes on for the day. And that involves also telling Hattie that you need to take your diaper off. Hattie still wears a diaper to bed. And that then led to a conversation about how, Hattie, it's time to give up the diaper. You're five and a half years old. You're a big girl now. You don't need the diaper anymore. You're big. You can get up in the middle of the night. If you need to go to the potty, you can go and then get back in bed. Don't need the diaper anymore. You know what Hattie said to me? She said, I don't want to talk about it. And she was very firm about that. I don't want to talk about that. I said, well, we need to talk about that. And we're going to talk about that. She said, no, I don't want to talk about it. She got up out of the living room, went in her bedroom, shut the door. Now, we expect that kind of childish behavior out of a five-year-old. But what we do not expect is that same kind of childish behavior out of an adult Christian. What kind of spiritual immaturity does it take where we go weeks or months or maybe even years and we can't even muster up our courage or maybe even more to the point, we can't swallow our pride and go and talk to a fellow child of God. If that describes you in any shape or form this morning, my admonition is clear. Grow up. It's time to grow up. It's time to go and talk to that brother in question. It's time to go and speak to that sister in question. Yes, you can do that in a number of different ways. Do that by text message. Do that by an email. Do that by phone call. All of that's a carrier pigeon. Whatever you want to do. But I'm really interested in what happened in Galatians 2 verse 11. Did you notice what Paul's particular method was? In Galatians 2 verse 11, Paul went to Peter and confronted him to his face. This was a personal interaction. It was one-on-one. And that personal one-on-oneness not only conveyed the seriousness of this, but it also demonstrated a fervent desire that Peter, Peter, we, we gotta make this right. We gotta get back on the same page here. And that's what you and I are gonna have to do. And yes, that may include having to sit down and having some hard doctrinal discussions about some complicated Bible matters. That may include having to have an unpleasant conversation about some painful past personal offenses. But you know what? That's what Christians do! We deal with those things! Isaiah said, come now, let us reason together. That was God's invitation to sinners. But that needs to be the invitation to one another as well. Brother, sister, let's sit down, let's reason together. And as we're doing that, as we're doing that communicating, we need to be making sure, thirdly, that we're talking less and also that we're talking more. Now, that may sound contradictory, but let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes I fear that we do too much talking about our differences to the wrong people And we don't do enough talking about our differences with the right people. And you understand that. That happens all of the time. That's not just a church thing. That happens in the workplace. That happens in families. That happens in friendships. That happens in marriage. Tiffany and I, shortly after we first got married, so this is about ten years ago now, 
We got into an argument over something silly, something that newlyweds, you know, all just argue and fuss about, just something that really didn't mean anything. But it made me really, really upset in the moment. And so what I did is I went and I confided and I talked to a good friend of mine, a very good brother in Christ, who'd already been married for 10 or 12 years himself, and I thought, I can commiserate with him. We can share some war stories here, and he's going to really pump me up here. Maybe he's going to offer me some advice that's really going to help me to get back at her. And so I went and I talked to him. I said, Tiffany did this, and she said this, and can you believe what she did? What should I do? And I'll never forget, Corey put his arm around me and kind of pulled me in close, and he said, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go. You need to talk to Tiffany. Wow, thanks, brother. I came hoping you'd be on my side on this. But actually, what he offered instead was the most obvious and actually the most scriptural response. And that is, stop talking to me about your problem and go talk to her about your problem. And isn't that exactly the procedure that Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 18? Look in Matthew chapter 18. As Jesus talks there about matters of personal offense between brethren, a brother has sinned against you, has offended you in some way, I will have you notice in Matthew 18 and verse 15 that step number one is not go and malign that brother to five other people. No. Step number one is not log on to Facebook and post some passive-aggressive meme about how you were mistreated by folks. No. Matthew 18 verse 15, step number one is what? Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I need to be dealing directly with the person that I believe has committed this offense that there's some some, some, some disgruntledness with. Don't go dragging other people into this situation. In fact, even in verse 16, when Jesus goes on to say that if step number one fails, that you need to take two or three along with you, That's not, hey, recruit up a bunch of people that they'll be on your side. And you're going to go and go gang up on that person. That's that's not the intent there. What Jesus is is admonishing in this passage is how I need to be extremely reluctant before I go running my mouth to other people. And let's be honest. Whenever we do go talk to other people about our problems, what is our tendency to do? Our tendency is to embellish. We start using hyperbole. They always do this. They never do this. Oh, I tell you what, you're never going to believe what she did to me. Oh, this brother, this position that he holds, I tell you what, he's like six inches away from becoming a full-blown Calvinist. Before you know it, we start saying things that are absurd. We start slandering. We end up ruining reputations. We drag other people into our mess. And what started as a tiny flame that could have been extinguished fairly easily, has now set ablaze a huge forest fire. All because we did not heed James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 to control our tongue. How many church splits could have been prevented if brethren had done more talking with the right people and less talking to the wrong people? And by the way, while I'm on this, since I'm talking here about the idea of we need to be talking more to the right people, you realize that amongst those right people to be talking to, that would also include your Heavenly Father. I kind of take that as a given that we're going to be praying whenever there is conflict in the body of Christ. How much praying are you doing? Father, grant me wisdom. Grant me courage. 
Grant me patience as I deal with one of your children as we try to work through our differences. And since I said something about patience, let me just add to this list fourthly, that we're going to need to be patient. If we're dealing with differences, we're going to learn, have to learn what it means to give people time to study and to grow. In Romans, the 14th chapter, Paul is dealing here with a church that was experiencing some difficulties with differences. Particularly, one of the things that he mentions here is the difference over the eating of certain kinds of meat. And so he begins the chapter with this statement. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So here's a brother who comes to a congregation and he holds the conviction that, that it's wrong, and that it's sinful to eat meat that's been offered to an idol. But here's the other brethren in that congregation who, well, well we don't hold that same conviction. We believe that that's a matter of individual conscience and that you don't need to be going and binding that opinion on everybody else. Well, the question is, what are we now going to do with brother no meat? Do we, do we pull away from him because his beliefs about that are just weird? Do, do we maybe, you know, treat him like he's some kind of a heretic for holding such a, such an unreasonable position? No. Paul says, welcome him. Receive him. And you do that not for the purpose of giving him a hard time about that and arguing about that for all of eternity. No, the implication here is that you need to welcome him so that you can then provide for him the time and the patience that's needed to help him to study and to grow. Here's this brother. He is less knowledgeable about some things. That's what's meant in verse 1 when it says that he's the weaker brother. He's weak in faith. And he needs more time to gain more knowledge so that he can have a better and more complete understanding. And is that not something that all of us need? I remember once hearing a story about a sister who... She had a really strong disagreement with a brother in the congregation uh, about the qualifications for a man to serve as an elder, one qualification in particular. And I think the man in question was, was one of the men who, who was being put up to be considered for an elder. And so she invited this brother to come over to her house for, for, for lunch and to discuss that matter. And as they sat down at the table, she said to him, she said, I'm going to fix you a sandwich. And if you don't agree with me by the time you finish eating that sandwich then I'm going to ask you to leave. Well, she was on the right track with giving him at least a little bit of time. But I'm guessing that even if that sister's position was the correct position, I'm guessing that brother was probably going to need more time than just the time that it takes to finish a sandwich to come around to her way of thinking. And in Romans the 14th chapter, I believe Paul is trying to describe more time than the time that it would take to eat a sandwich. I think Paul's talking in Romans 14 about some long suffering with brethren. He's talking there about the patience that Brandon preached on earlier in January. He's talking about the forbearance that Brother Josh preached on in January, that Ephesians 4 verse 2 commands. And I don't know about you, but I am awfully glad that God has given me The time to study. The time to grow. The time to come around on His teaching. There's lots of things I still have not figured out. And I hope the Lord continues to bear with me as I develop a more complete faith. Now if God gives me that time to study and to grow, then should I not also do that for my brethren? It takes time 
It takes time to grow, especially if a person has some convictions and some beliefs that they've had for years and years, maybe even decades. Spiritual growth is an ongoing process. All of us are at different points on the spectrum. So how about instead of getting frustrated and aggravated and disgruntled with those who are weak, how about those who are strong do what Romans 14 goes on to say, and that is how about we reach down and help pull them up. That's what we need to be doing. In fact, since we're talking about that, it is important, fifthly, that we also allow for the possibility that we could be wrong. Here I'm all upset with a brother that I am just convinced he is in doctrinal error. Or I'm all upset with this sister because I am just convinced she's done something wrong. She's done something sinful. And what needs to happen is he needs to make a change. She needs to be corrected. But but what if I'm the one who needs to make the change? What if I'm the one who's actually wrong? I've certainly been wrong before. What makes me think I can't be wrong this time? You know, whenever I sit down to study the Bible with a non-Christian, I usually begin those studies by saying something along the lines of, Hey, listen, I have some strong convictions about the Bible, and I believe that I am correct in my understanding, and so I live my life in accordance with those beliefs and with those convictions. But I want you to know that if you can show me from the Scriptures where I am wrong, then I will change. In fact, I will gladly change. I will be more than glad to, and I'll be happy that you showed me where I was wrong. I want non-Christians to know right out of the gate that I am not perfect. Well, as much as we need to be willing to do that with non-Christians, we need to be willing to do that with our brethren. We need to be willing to step outside of ourselves and to consider that I might be wrong. In fact, that's that humility that Paul describes in Ephesians 4 too. Luke preached on that in January. It is that lowliness of mind that says, you know what? I am not always right. I do not actually know everything. My opinions and my think-sos are not the same as the inspired Word of God. Solomon says in Proverbs 12 and verse 15 that only a fool thinks that his ways are right all the time. The truth is, the problem that I have may not actually be with my brothers or my sisters. The problem that I have may actually be with the man in the mirror. And may God help all of us to be honest enough with ourselves to recognize when the problem is with me and to then be ready to repent. Maybe kind of tied closely with that idea of some self-examination is this sixth key for dealing with our differences. And that is, we need to be open-minded. We need to be open-minded as we discuss our differences. In 1 Thessalonians 5, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says some, something here that I think is very helpful. Some very pointed instructions. In verse 21, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and in verse 21, Paul says, prove all things. That's how some of the translations render it. Or test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain then from every form of evil. That word prove there just means to put to the test. To see if it's genuine. To see if it's real. To see if it, see if it stands up. That is, if what we find passes the test of, of Scripture. Here's this particular issue that we're discussing and debating. And I'm going to then put that alongside the Word of God. I'm going to put it to the test. If I find it to be true, then Paul says I need to hold on to that. I need to keep that. And if I put it to the test and I find out that that thing is not true, that it's not good... I need to reject that. I need to get rid of that. We all get that. We all understand that principle. 
And yet I wonder how often we fail to run that little matrix whenever a brother or a sister in Christ presents something to us that is new or is different to our way of thinking. I wonder how many times we just quickly jump to the conclusion that, you know what, that's false. That's wrong. Because that's not the way that I've always heard it. That's not the way that we've always done things around here. I know, for example, of some brethren who became just absolutely unglued at the elders in the congregation where they attended when the elders decided to shift away from having a Sunday evening service and instead began having an elongated Sunday morning service. And for the record, I like Sunday evening service. That's actually my preference. But I asked them, hey, what's your problem with that? What, what, What were you so upset about? What's your grievance about? And they said, I quote, we just don't like all this new stuff. Oh, oh, okay. where's that in the Bible? Get upset because it's new to your way of thinking. Paul did not say if you encounter an idea that's new to you, that maybe is outside of your comfort zone, that what you need to do is you need to reject that. What's Paul saying in 1 Thessalonians 5? He says, test it. Test all things. That suggests to me having an open mind. And in fact, isn't that what we ask our denominational friends to do whenever we're studying with them? We ask them to have an open mind. Hey, consider some things that maybe you've not considered before. Test it to Scripture. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. 1 John 4 verse 1. Now, if we're going to do that with our denominational friends, how much more should we do that with our brethren in Christ? To give them a fair hearing and to weigh their position alongside the Word of God. That's the kind of consideration that helps to build bridges. Instead of building walls. All of that then leads me to some rapid fire don'ts for dealing with our differences in the body of Christ. There's talked about a lot of things we do need to be doing. Let me just rapid fire you some things that we need to not be doing if we're going to be one. For example, do not ever give an answer before hearing the other side. You know, we talked so much this morning about communication, but let's remember that communication is not just all talk. It also involves listening. In Proverbs chapter 18, in Proverbs chapter 18, the wise man says here, beginning in verse 13, he says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and it is his shame. Drop down to verse 17. The one who states his case first, he seems right. That is, until the other comes and examines him. When I just assume that my brother believes X, Y, and Z, without actually talking with them first, without actually studying with them first, without actually giving them an opportunity to give a defense of what it is that they truly believe, then what I have done, Solomon says, is a foolish and shameful thing. In fact, when we do that, it often leads to us also breaking this next don't, and that is, don't misrepresent the other side. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens, I think, accidentally. We just don't have all the facts of what that other person's position is. And so we maybe just kind of misstate things and we just weren't entirely clear about that. That sometimes happens accidentally. But sometimes I'm afraid that it happens purposely and intentionally. We do have all the facts and we are just purposely misrepresenting the other side. We want to cast them in the worst possible light. And once again, this is where I find it extremely helpful For us to think about the shoe being on the other foot. Do you like being misrepresented? In anything. In life, in your workplace, 
In matters of religion, do you like being misrepresented? Do you like it when people say, you church of Christers, you bunch of snotty people, prideful people, you think you're the only ones going to heaven and all the rest of us are going to hell? That does not accurately reflect and represent what I believe the Bible teaches. I don't appreciate when people say things like that. People say things like, oh, you're just one of those water salvationists. Again, that does not accurately describe my position on baptism or on salvation. But you know what? It's a whole lot easier. A whole lot easier to just say things and lob things out there into the open without actually sitting down and talking with someone and getting to know them. When people throw out all kinds of mischaracterizations like that, it doesn't cause me to grow closer to them. No, it actually causes me to pull away from them. Why then would I ever do that kind of thing to a brother or a sister with whom I disagree about something? Maybe a big healthy dose of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is what we need in all of this, that golden rule thing about treating others the way that we want to be treated. That's what we need here. In fact, that goes for this next idea as well, and that is... Don't be assigning labels. Don't be quick to start throwing out labels. This is such a divisive tactic. And it does not lead to unity. In fact, in my estimation, it's cheap. And it is a dishonorable way of dealing with conflict. I'll show you that. Look in Luke 7. In Luke 7 and in verse 34, the opponents of Jesus, they saw Him eating and drinking with tax collectors and with sinners. And what did they say? What was their estimation of that? Did they say, oh, look, the Lord's having a Bible study with those people who really need the gospel. Is that what they said? Nope. Luke 7 verse 34 says, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Was that true? No, it was not. But once again, it's a whole lot easier to look at somebody for all of five seconds and label them than it is to actually find out the truth. And sometimes with our brethren, it's a whole lot easier to just lob out some prejudicial term or name than it is to sit down and to study. We hear things and people say things. Sometimes among us, we say things like, oh, he's just so liberal. Or you know what, that church over there, they're just trying to be so trendy. Or maybe on the other side of that, say things like, oh, he's such a Pharisee. Or that church over there, they're just so backwards and traditional. How does that help? How does that help at all? I thought we were trying to be united here. How does that kind of name calling and labeling, how does that promote unity? I'm not interested in being liberal or conservative. I'm interested in being scriptural, truthful. How about we just stick with that? Just like this last don't. Don't impute ill motives to your brethren. Would you find 1 Corinthians chapter 2? This is something that I noticed in our Corinthian study on Wednesday nights. Paul says something here that it's maybe not directly related to the idea of dealing with difficulties within the church. But he does state a general truth that I, that I do think applies to the point that we're making here. In 1 Corinthians 2, look in verse 11. Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? You know what that passage tells us? That passage tells us that we are not mind readers. We are not heart readers. We do not always know the thoughts and intents and wishes and desires of a person unless they reveal those things to us. That is a general truth that, again, I think we all accept in life. That is, 
That is, until a disagreement breaks out with someone. And we are so prone to start judging the motives of others with whom we differ. Preacher gets up and maybe says something that, that we disagreed with or we didn't like. Well, he's a false teacher. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's trying to destroy the church. Somebody in a Bible class speaks up and expresses an opposing or a different point of view. Oh, that brother just doesn't care about the Lord, doesn't care about the Bible. Why do we do that? Why do we jump to the worst possible conclusions with our brethren? Why do we assume that our brethren don't love the Lord? Or that they don't respect the authority of Scripture? Why do we pass motive, pass judgment on the motives of others when Paul clearly says, we don't know? How about instead we just start baseline beginning with the assumption that I'm going to think the best of my brethren. I'm going to start with the assumption that, you know what, I think that brother was being very sincere. You know what, I think that sister, I think she meant well when she did that. How about we start there? And you know what, if we're wrong in that assumption, then so be it. I would much rather err on the side of grace and mercy than to err on the side of judgment and condemnation. Because what's our goal? Our goal is to deal with our differences in such a way that God is honored and that unity is maintained and in fact that unity is strengthened. Now, somebody may be able to look at that and you're maybe thinking about specific instances uh, that have existed in your life or maybe presently exist and you're thinking, okay, Josh, I've, I've ran the gamut of those things. Tried all that stuff and still not quite as united with my brother or my sister as I know God wants me to be. What can we do here? We've kind of, kind of maybe kind of reached an impasse here. Is there anything that can be done? Let me lob out one more idea, and this really kind of entails everything. And that is, at the end of the day, I'm going to suggest that we need to just go back and read the crucifixion of Jesus. Somebody says, Josh, what? Read the crucifixion of Jesus? thought we were talking here about how to deal with church problems. What's the crucifixion of Jesus have to do with that? Oh, oh it has everything to do with that. Because it is the very basis of everything that we are, both individually... And collectively, you sit down in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, take your pick or read them all, and you read the account of Christ's suffering. Maybe begin on that Thursday evening in the upper room when Judas goes out to betray Him. That then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is praying in agony, those, those drops of sweat that were like blood. You read about the arrest of Jesus and the kangaroo court that He was taken through. You read about the scourging that He had to endure to His physical body. The crown that was plaited upon His head. The robe that was placed about His body. The mockery and the ridicule that went with that. You read about the nails being driven into His hands and into His feet. How His body is then hoisted above the earth as He hung there for hours upon hours in a shameful and torturous display. As He died, He died a criminal's death. Why did Jesus subject Himself to all of that? Why did He go through all of that pain and all of that anguish? Somebody would say, well, it was to secure our redemption. Yes, it was. Somebody else would say, it was to provide us the way to heaven. Yes, it was. Somebody would say, He did that in order to give us access to the abundant life. Yes, He did. But you know why Jesus also did that? He went through all of that in order to adopt us into God's family. He went through all of that in order to make us brothers and sisters. In the words of Ephesians 2 and verse 16, 
He reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And I realize that passage is talking about Jews and Gentiles and the differences that they had. But I think that echoes even now 2,000 years later to the differences that brothers and sisters have today. Jesus died in order to tear those walls down. And so when my heart is filled with anger toward my brother, when my mind is filled with ill thoughts toward my sister, what I need to be reminded of is that Jesus died for that person. He sacrificed Himself so that we may know the blessings of being one with the Father, being one with the Son, and being one with each other. What then am I willing to sacrifice in order to preserve and to strengthen that unity? It may be that right now, at this moment, what needs to be sacrificed is your pride, brother, or your hard feelings, sister. Maybe what needs to happen right now is that you acknowledge that you have not dealt with your differences with your brethren in a Christ-like manner, and that what you need for that is that you need forgiveness. So that you can be, number one, right with God, but secondly, so that you can be right with God's family. You know, sometimes people will talk about quarreling Christians, and they'll kind of laugh about that, and they'll say, (laughs) I don't see how they're going to get along in heaven. Oh, I assure you, they're not going to have to worry about that. Because if you're quarreling with your brother or your sister, you're not going to be in heaven. Which is why right now is the time to repent of that. And if we can pray with you, if we can encourage you, if we can help you in some way to be one with God and to be one with God's family, then this invitation is for you. If we can help you in some other way to be in a right relationship with the Lord, seize advantage of this moment by making your way down front while we stand and while we sing.